This podcast contains potentially sensitive topics, including strong language, drug use, sex trafficking, and other conditions of human suffering. Listener discretion is advised. I remember the first time that, that it happened, I was, there was a thunderstorm. I'm hearing this thunder and lightning, and I'm, I'm scared, so... I run out to the living room crying, and he's on the couch watching cartoons. So he says, you know, come lay down with me. All night, I remember I kept pushing him, pushing my hand away, or just, you know, I couldn't sleep. I was tossing and turning because he was bothering me. I felt like he was safe, you know. I came to him for comfort, and I didn't know how to respond to that. So I just, you know, brushed it off. Yeah, and again, you were... Seven. Seven years old. Seven. Hello, everyone. I'm Rex Holbein, and welcome to You Know Me Now, a podcast conversation that strives to amplify the unheard voices in our community. For the past 12 years, I have met and spent a great deal of time with thousands of folks living homeless. Through those conversations and friendships, I learned how destructive and baseless the dehumanizing effects of the negative stereotype are against ordinary people, people who are just like you and me. In these episodes, I want to remind all of our listeners that the folks who share here do so with a great deal of vulnerability and courage. They share a common hope that by giving all of us a window into their world, they are opening an increased level of awareness, understanding, and connection within our own community. Well, my mom was the single mom of six uh, for a long time. Um, well, she wasn't exactly a single mom. She had a husband that just was a succubus, basically, and beat her. Um, those are my earliest memories. I was hiding in a motel room with my brothers. And we knew he was going to find us. It was just a matter of time, you know, before he, you know, came through the door and started beating on my mom. I remember hiding in the bathroom, terrified with my brothers just crying, wanting to do something, but feeling totally helpless. We want to begin this episode by asking a really big question. With all the suffering, all the helplessness and fear felt, as expressed by Danae and others living on our streets, why have we not ended homelessness? Now, beyond what the solutions need to be, whatever combination of more housing, more mental health, more drug rehab, more job training, and whatever else more is needed, why haven't we made it happen? Could it be that we are only seeing the forest and because of it genuinely missing the trees? Are we so overwhelmed by the larger issue of homelessness that we are truly missing the person going through it. When folks living inside discuss homelessness among each other, the conversation often ends up being about how, quote, the issue, unquote, affects them or their neighborhood. To put it directly, what impacts the lives of the housed is what gets talked about when discussing the unhoused. Now that list includes the piling up of garbage, drug use, loss of park use, taxes, panhandling, right down to how the homeless smell and look on public transit. And because many people living inside are frankly tired of it or overwhelmed by it or even angry over it, often the knee-jerk reaction is to want all of it, the whole issue, to just go away. As community, we then support 
or quietly consent, while the city erects chain-link fencing around areas that were providing cover from the rain for those without shelter. We are okay with hostile architecture installed that prevents people from being able to sleep on benches where they were able to be off the ground. We are put off when we see folks hiding in the bushes or back alleys publicly going to the bathroom, but we don't demand public bathrooms and garbage pickup for those without a place to live. And we turn away when sweeps are conducted, not seeing the lives being uprooted. Despite these types of actions, as well as the efforts to bring programs and services, the issue not only persists, it is getting worse. We have to ask ourselves, really, why is that? What are we missing here? Is only seeing the issue of homelessness and its effect on us, the housed, part of the problem? Would our programs and services change if we changed how we see the issue? Meaning, if we start to see the person actually suffering through homelessness. Today we have the sincere pleasure of talking with Danae. If you listened to our last episode titled The Sweep, you already know her voice. For this recording, we started our conversation with Danae asking about her early childhood and the unstable home life she was exposed to while her mother struggled to provide. At this point, she only had four of us. And then she got with this other guy and had two more kids. And this other guy was just an alcoholic loser, basically. Um, And uh, I was sexually abused from the time I was seven to the time I was 12 by him. And uh, came out about it and nobody believed me. Including your mom? Yeah. So um, I had the opportunity to go to court. But, you know, being 12 years old, being told I'm wrong, and having to fight in a courtroom was not exactly ideal. So I chose not to. I'm so sorry about that. That's horrible. Yeah. Um, It is what it is. It's really common, actually, you know. (laughs) How do you know it's common? Do you have friends? A lot of women that I know that are homeless, they have experienced very similar experience, you know, things like... And a really common um, thing for mothers to do is not believe their their children when they tell them that because they don't want to believe that they put their child in that position, I think. You know, how I could never do that to my kid. You know, they have to be lying, basically, is what I think it is. And um, doesn't excuse it, but it's nonetheless that that seems like the most reasonable (laughs) if there is one explanation for that. When I first met Danae, about seven years ago, she was cruising down University Avenue on her skateboard with a sketchbook. She was just 19 years old and wonderfully full of ideas. Vibrant, really. I didn't know back then, when I first met her, that she was homeless. It hadn't visibly, physically taken from her yet. There was no way for me to know how difficult her life had already been. Well, I was a problem child, you know. I did, I was, I acted out, but a lot of it was because of being sexually abused and I felt like I wasn't getting the attention that I needed. And I was scared, you know. I didn't know what to do and I didn't understand that it was something that was wrong at that age. Because at that time you know your body tells you one thing that this feels good right but your mind tells you that it's wrong something's not right about this yeah so there comes a point where you get confused and almost scared because you don't want to be in trouble and a lot of a lot of people the children that go through that they don't even talk about it Danae quickly figured out she could manipulate the situation by being rebellious and difficult. Deep underneath it all, she felt completely betrayed by the adults in her life. I knew I could get away with it because he had a special thing for me or whatever. So 
I could act out and not get my ass beat, basically, mm. is what it came down to. But my brothers, he was really mean to. Mm. You know, he threw one of my brothers down the stairs by his hair. He was just a bad guy. Um, my mom broke up with him. Or he broke up with her about six months after I got kicked out. Probably because he didn't have a little girl to fuck with anymore. <laughs> and um, I was allowed to come back. But I didn't want to at that point. I felt betrayed. Yeah. And how old were you? I was 12, almost 13. And when you say kicked out, like where, my mom, where did you go at 12 or 13 years old when you're kicked out? Um, I went to a bridge. You know, I found a bridge and um, there was an old couple, alcoholic couple, that took me in. And there was a guy, his name was Todd. So immediately I was like, Uncle Todd, you know? And uh, this guy kept me safe, you know? We had to share a blanket, but it wasn't inappropriate. He was a good, uh, comforting, you know, figure in my life for a little bit. He was looking out for you. Yeah. Um, and I felt safe because he never tried anything that, like that, you know? So I felt safe for once. I'm curious what your mom would say now about knowing or being told that you were sexually abused. Does she own, does she like, have you had that conversation with her? I've tried. Um, she, I don't think that she's ready to talk about it because I've, I've tried. I want closure and I want her to acknowledge what I've been through and know that it's not her fault know that I don't blame her, that I love her, and that, you know, things happen, but not to just brush it off, you know, acknowledge that that happened and give me a chance to, you know, redeem myself, essentially, because I, there was a lot of, you know, I struggled with drug addiction for a long time because of uh, what I'd been through, and uh, so I was very selfish. It sounds like uh, surviving, not being selfish, just... Well, yeah, but it, it, in a way, s drug addiction is, you know, the people that use drugs are very selfish people, you know. They don't care about how they affect people around them. Uh, you could be torturing your family members and loved ones and not even give a shit. So is that them or is that the drugs doing it? It's the drugs. Yeah. You know. But that's who they become because yeah. of it. And I think that the feelings about that, the regret, the embarrassment, the self-loathing feeling that you get from knowing that you treat people who really care about you so poorly is enough to keep somebody stuck in addiction, you know. Wow. I regret I a lot of things that I've done. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's something I haven't heard before, and I really appreciate it because it explains you know, the load that, that, that a person's carrying that's gone through drug addiction and if they've, if they've treated other people poorly, that they're still carrying the memories of that. Yeah. It, I mean, it's never brushed off, you know. I, it's very much remembered. And, and I've had, it's funny because I have friends that are, have struggled with addiction as well and they've done something to screw me over and felt so guilty that they come out and tell me, you know. And, and I think that that really goes to show that, it, it, you know, a lot of people have really negative feelings towards drug addicts because they don't understand where, where they're coming from. But we're not totally heartless, you know. Those, these, these people that, you know, they're out stealing and, and uh, destroying people's properties and all this stuff, they're doing that to feed their addiction, and I don't think that that's excusable by any means. But I think that uh, if we can try to understand where it comes from, we might be able to solve the problem. And if we were to back up one step even from there, which is why did they take drugs in the first place, a lot of women that you know that are out on the street have been sexually abused. And men. And men. And men. Mm -hmm. and. And do you think that's, I mean, that's a, you, that's a common story that, that... Very that, common.
that drug addiction follows that. And I know when I hear that, like my heart just goes out to you. I think, I like I, it's, again, I don't want to like say, oh, then we shouldn't be bothered by drug addiction and the consequences of it. But like, I'm trying to find the right words, but it's almost like I want to give you a free pass on life knowing what you went through during that time. That sounds, sounds horrific and, and explains, it, to me it explains drug addiction. Yeah. Well, you know, I look at that and then I hear about, you know, um, for example, like a single mother who struggled with addiction that got clean, right, for their child, like my mom did. As soon as she struggled with addiction uh, when she was young, and as soon as she got pregnant with me at 16, she quit. And to, my mom's story is inspirational to me because she is the, by far the strongest woman I know, by any means. And everything that I've said about my mom so far, it's not to say that, that she's a bad woman. She's a very wonderful woman, and she works very hard. She pr worked three jobs, at a time, that's mostly why she couldn't pay attention to what was going on with me because she was always working, you know? Yeah. She busted her ass for us. Yeah. It's hard to provide for six kids on your own, you know? Yeah. Especially if you are also receiving abuse from your partner. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, he was taking money and using it for alcohol and his video games. And it was just, you know... It, he didn't put in anything. He was just taking from us. And he, he, my mom, she, no matter what, she had to get up every morning. She has degenerative disc disease. It's extremely painful. Um, she was uh, prescribed a bunch of Oxycontin. And to this day, she still has to take them, you know. Um, but there was a long stretch of time where she could not get out of bed. So... We were really struggling for money, and uh, I remember my brother told me he was breaking into people's lockers during lunch and stealing their electronics to go sell them at the pawn shop so that he could provide money for us. And all of my siblings, out of all of them, I'm the only one that struggles with drug addiction. All of them um, have learned from me, I guess, not to be um, so weak, you know, in a yeah. sense. Is that how you see it, being weak? Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, there's a lot of things that I think that um, I've been through that I just don't even know how I could still be sane. But um, I think that drug addiction is just a cop-out, you know? It's a way to escape the pain and the world around you. And it's unfortunate. I'm so grateful to have a mother that that was willing to work so hard for for me and for my brothers. And no matter what, she she's you know she's strong. She's like a superwoman of sorts. To me. Danae's real biological father left the family as soon as he found out that Danae's mother was pregnant with Danae. He went to the Philippines, remarried, had more children there and returned to the States with his new wife and kids. As often as the case, it's complicated. So I was kind of a black sheep um, as far as my dad's side was concerned. I was not treated the same as the, my, my brothers, you know, always kind of outcasted because I wasn't, you know, my parents had me out of wedlock. How did you have the wherewithal at 12 to to be able to handle that? Or had it been that there'd just been enough shit up to that point that this was just another step? Yeah, pretty much. I, I just, I wanted out. I was having problems at school because I was, wouldn't sleep at night because of my night terrors and because I was being sexually abused. I didn't get enough sleep. So during school, I'd fall asleep. So I was super behind. My math, my mathematical skills are so, horrendous. I, I truly believe that uh, I have the skills of a m mathematical skills of a fourth grader. <laughs> I'm that far behind. Well, you just didn't get the education. Yeah, yeah. After sleeping through um, enough school, I didn't uh, 
didn't have the knowledge to move forward with, you know, my education. And uh, I got frustrated and just gave up. So you, you, you quit school? Yeah. It's common knowledge that stress reduces the ability for good decision making. We've all experienced that. But chronic stress that Danae experienced from the age of seven compounds the situation by creating tunnel vision, reducing the number of options to make decisions from. Danae was trapped. There was no safety at home, and on the street, being a very young woman, she was extremely vulnerable. So from 12 on, it was just like, I was stuck in this um, weird mess ring, like sex ring, like basically. And uh, I didn't even realize what was going on. Um, I was basically being sold for, um, for meth and didn't realize it for a few years before um, I got out of that. The guy that was operating this whole ring uh, went to prison. Yeah, so by the time I got out of that, I was about 14. How is it that you were unaware that you were in a sex ring between 12 and 14? I mean, were, was this something Because wrong? they make you think that it's something you want. They make you think that it's your idea. You know? And, um... I don't. Like, give me an example. Like, like, introduce you to somebody and be like, yeah, he's really cute, right? You like him, yeah? Yeah, come on, you know you like him, you know, kind of thing. And then, um, so exchange would happen and he'd take off with, with me and then abandon me somewhere. And then I would go back to the original person I was with and uh, do it again. all over again. Yeah. It sounds crazy, I know, that uh, you wouldn't be aware of something like that, but it's, being that young, it's kind of hard to understand where people's motivation comes from, I think. When and I had already been exposed to sexual abuse, so it was the norm at this point. Yeah. You know? Were these people that were also on the street, or were these? Yes. So, yeah. I see. Um, there's a huge sex ring on, on, in the, uh, homeless community that goes around, uh, it's very sick, twisted. How, how prevalent is that? Like, like my, like, I'm oblivious to that whole world, right? Because I, I just am. Mm-hmm. And so when, so I, when I hear you say that, I, it's hard for me to say, is that just every once in a while a story or is that, is that? No, that's a very common occurrence. Like... Most of the women that I know have, at some point in their life, been through that Mm. on the streets. Have been trafficked. Yeah. Not to the point where they were taken out of the city or the state, you know, but they were forced to perform sexual favors, you know, for money um, by either men or women. um, And they were either... uh, they. Either they have children and somebody would threaten their children's lives or they would threaten their lives, you know. So um, it goes a lot deeper than than I think a lot of people can really understand. So whenever I see a sex worker, I just, it breaks my heart. Sometimes you hear, and I don't subscribe to this thought, but sometimes you'll hear people say, well... You know, in the sex industry, there are a certain percentage of women that want to be there. Do you think that's true? Yeah. Yeah, that is true to a point. Um, But it's a very small percentage, I think. Yeah. Overwhelmingly, people are being coerced into it. Yeah. Yeah. Just like how I was talking about not being aware that that, um, they were making me think that was something I want. I think that it's very common that maybe a very sexual-oriented uh, person, woman or man, you know, uh, who just likes to have fun and, and have sex with friends or whatever, they get coerced into, um, in, into selling themselves, you know, because they would have had sex anyways, so why not make yeah. money doing it? Yeah. So, and then they get, sometimes it, it turns into a forced thing, 
you know, and um, it's really unfortunate. As often is the case, it only takes one person to reach in and help pull someone through when they are in crisis. Danae did have a boyfriend at the time who was there for her when things got really bad. He was a little bit older than me, so, and I think that he expected more of me, you know, um, because I was, I don't, he didn't know about everything that I had been through. There were times where, you know, I was really lost and scared and I would, you know, talk, I would get a hold of him on Facebook and tell him, hey, I'm, I'm lost, I'm scared, can you come pick me up? He'd pick me up, we'd go up to the mountains and spend a few days together up there. Yeah, sobering up and, uh, you know, just getting away from the world. Wow, that's a, that's a beautiful thing to do for a friend, for yeah. someone that you cared about, for sure. Yeah. At 16, Danae gave birth to her daughter. She knew she was too young to be the mother she wanted to be. And at the same time, did not want to give her child up for adoption for fear of losing her completely. Her mother, who now lives in eastern Washington, agreed to raise her child. She doesn't know I'm her mom yet, but I hope that I get to know her better and tell her at some point. How often do you get to see her? Um... Now that my mom moved to Eastern Washington, I haven't seen her in a while. The year before I had seen her, um, I, my friend uh, Jamie um, took me out there to go see her. And uh, I got to spend a day out there and um, she uh, is wonderful, absolutely beautiful, uh, very smart. She, I remember the look on her face when we rolled up. She was so excited. She ran out there and she's like, she sees me in my little um, jumper outfit and she's like, oh my gosh, look at you. You look like an artist came straight out of Paris. And I, I just remember thinking to myself, she doesn't even know, Yeah. you know, and that, that just made me so happy to hear that. She just thinks so highly of me, Yeah. you know? And um, and how is she, how are you explained? You're just her. I'm just her sister. Yeah, just her sister. You know, and um, I think she knows. I really do because she asked me about that at one point, and um, she just kind of hinted around it, but didn't directly ask me. Mm. And I didn't feel like it was the right time, so I just said, you know, yeah, I'm your sister, you know. And yeah. she's like, well, you're the best big sister anybody could have. And oh, that just made my heart. Your heart must have exploded. Yeah. It, I never thought in a million years I'd hear that out of her mm, mouth. That's beautiful. You know. So we painted together. I made her a couple paintings and uh, took took um, took photos of everything that I made and then we made paintings together and we I took photos of that you know we went swimming we jumped on a trampoline forever mm. she put me in my place <laughs> <laughs> I was smoking a cigarette on the trampoline oh yeah she told you to knock it off yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, smart kid <laughs> yeah. I really want to be in my daughter's life I've like I've I've neglected that so far because I know when I was 16 having her I was definitely not ready did you know that then yeah yeah I was going to give her up for adoption but my aunt talked me out of it I made an agreement with my mom that uh, part of the stipulations was six months um, clean and sober uh, minimum um uh, a, a stable living position, a stable living uh, situation, and uh, maintaining a job for a year. Wow. And to be then, financially stable before she, I can have her back in my life like uh, that. And it, it feels like you, it really does feel like you're working towards that. I think that it's only appropriate that since my life changed in such a drastic way, at that age, that yeah. it's about time that 
I come out to her. Or at least become a more prominent figure in her life yeah. so that she, I can open that door yeah. when yeah. she's ready, you know. She's so happy and so bright and mm. so... I wasn't ex I was so nervous. I didn't know what to say, you know, but she took care of that. Yeah. Like she led the conversation on. And I was worried about my sailor's mouth and, you know, my teeth being messed up and do I smell bad? Do I look weird, you know? Um am I sucked up? Like all these things in my head and she didn't see any of my flaws that I thought she was going to see right away. Yeah. You know, it was just a really great experience yeah. for me and I hope it was for her too. Yeah. It sounds like it was. That experience has been my latest muse. That's all I can think about is just a little slice of paradise over there, you know, and I just want to be there so bad. Like every 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 time I think about it, I just imagine, you know, that property is just it's so mm -hmm. perfect, you know. Too often when we judge others, we forget that not everyone starts at the same start line. We can't measure how far someone has come when we don't know how far back they had to start. When I saw you last, which was I think a couple of years ago, you were down in Soto in the RV and I think you had just found out that you had the kidney failure issues. And can, you, can you explain a little bit about that? Because I'm honestly, when I left you that last time, I thought to myself, Oh, I might not ever see you again. And you you seem so healthy, and I know you probably are still struggling with some of that stuff, but can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I uh, was um, muscling uh, massive amounts of heroin into my, into my thighs and, and my butt and uh, had infections regularly, abscesses. The doctors told me that that was the cause. It was... Um, I had renal, was it, um, sudden renal failure due to excessive continuous exposure to infection. And that makes sense to me because, you know, your kidneys are your, are, that's your, uh, filter, you know, and, um, I, I was peeing out completely clear pee, which is, people think that's a good thing. No, it's not. That means that all the toxins in my body that I should have been peeing out are not being peed out. Mm. I'm still retaining all of them. Mm, your kidneys weren't filtering it. Yeah. So my kidneys had 8% functionality at the time, and um, I was bedridden for about six months. I couldn't walk by myself. I had to have a friend help me go to the bathroom every day. Anytime I had to move, I couldn't even lift a blanket with my legs. You know, I was so weak. And we were homeless, so he would put a trash can down and put a bag in it and then help me stand up, pull my pants down, sit on the trash can, go to the bathroom, you know, tie it up, throw it out, and help me lay back down. Wow. But I was peeing on myself regularly because of my legs being swollen, so he'd have to help me change my clothes and all that other stuff. So I was basically a big baby. <laughs> yeah for a long time yeah. and uh, a sick big baby yeah I'm eternally grateful for Will for that he he really helped me through that and Jamie yeah but you didn't quit uh, heroin use so how did you come out of it yeah so I kept using for a long time through that about six months of that and then I was he Will said Danae your infection is bad I can smell it from here I cannot stand it anymore, and I'm scared you're going to die. You need to go to the hospital. So I went. When they told me that I had kidney failure, I was shocked. I didn't think that there was that much wrong with me. But then I started thinking about it, and all the pains that I had in my lower back, right where my kidneys were, I would always have this, you know, and twitch, and it, it was, you know, it was like, somebody stabbing me in the back in my kidneys yeah. and I didn't know why I remember thinking I thought there was something wrong with my kidneys I brushed it off so turns out I was right <laughs> and um, yeah so, so when you heard that news did you really cut back on your use yeah for a little bit I did and then um, 
after I started going to my doctors regularly and they said, look, we're not going to help you unless if you help yourself. We're not going to put the effort into helping you unless you help yourself because we regularly deal with drug addicts that we help and then they just fuck it all up and then they die. And we don't want to feel like we did something wrong. So you help yourself and we'll help you. So that's what I did. I got on methadone and I quit shooting heroin. I relapsed on the uh, perk 30s that have been going around. Perk 30s? Yeah, the blue pills. Oh, the blue pills, the fentanyl pills. Yeah. The ones that you smoke on a little aluminum tinfoil. Yeah, I relapsed on that and was smoking that for a while, but it made me sick, like coughing up nasty shit. And so I switched to fentanyl powder. Like, my use has always been extremely high. Like, I, I honestly use more than anybody I know when I use, you know? So, uh, and I've only overdosed the first time I ever did it. So, I was a very safe user, but I used an excessive amount, always. Of the fentanyl or... Anything I used, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, Danae, I know you know this. There's lots of information about how deadly the fentanyl powder is. Yeah, um... I think that, yeah, the fentanyl powder has been, um, I've lost a lot of people. I've lost about 15 or 16 friends over the past year to fentanyl powder. Um, But you're not taking any fentanyl now? No. And are you on methadone still? No. So you're completely clean? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that, that wasn't good enough. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Danae, that's so beautiful. Yeah, I'm... I'm um, so happy for you. I. It feels good to feel things again, you know. My kidneys have 25% functionality, which is a huge improvement for me. Yeah. And will the kidneys continue to improve? No. No, the doctor told me that it's not like your liver, where your liver can repair itself. You know, um, your kidneys, when you do damage to them, typically it's, it's done. Uh, he said I'll probably be on dialysis at some point in my life, but it's going to be way down the road. So I'm not looking forward to it, but I'm happy to know that I'm not going to be on dialysis anytime soon. Yeah. And also that you're alive. Yeah. 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 Cause, um, I was Mostly, I was upset about not being able to be a, a figure in my daughter's life. Yeah. I'm hoping to get my teeth fixed soon because um, I'm sick and tired of being in pain, and they look horrendous. Um, and is there a program to help you with that? I'm not sure about that. Um, I've been looking into it. Uh, I have heard that um, there's a couple schools that will do... Um, that will do work on your teeth if uh, if you allow students to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm a little concerned about the idea of that because they're students, but um, I don't have the finances to 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 provide um, or to be able to afford that. So I'm willing to take a chance. Yeah, that would help. I think a lot with um, my self-esteem, being able to integrate back into society. It's it's hard for me to be able to look for a job because um, I want to I want to do something where I'm like I would like to be a, a waitress or a, you know housekeeping and stuff like that. But when people see my teeth, they automatically are like, you know, they're like, what the fuck is wrong with this bitch, you know? And so it, it's a turnoff instantly, you know, and uh, I. It gives me a hard time trying to find a legitimate job. What kind of work are you doing? Um, so I do like a little bit of everything. I've done landscaping. I do housekeeping. I've done delivery driving, you know. Yeah. Um, just anything and everything I can in order to make money that doesn't involve selling my body. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, that's, that seems like a really good step for you. Yeah. Mean, honestly, to be having a employment and starting to feel like, you know, you can, you can bring income in. Yeah. Right now I need a, to, like, I lost my, I lost everything I owned this year, like, three times over. Like, my Pontiac got towed with 
most of what I had, and then my GMC got stolen um, with almost everything, including my dad's photos and and um, uh, everything that I owned that belonged to my dad besides his wallet, which that's all I have left of him is his wallet. That is that is so frustrating. Yeah, and I worked really hard for everything I had, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's not much, but it's mine. Yeah. And the city's doing that a lot to people, yeah. especially homeless people. There's a lot of homeless people that actually work legitimate jobs, you know, and um, people don't know that, but it, it's a real thing. Yeah. Yeah, there are a, a group of homeless people that steal, and whatever, but. Uh, that's not all of them, and so for that, for the city or anybody else to just walk in and say you can't have this anymore it's because crazy. you don't deserve it is yeah. messed up. And, and, the, and people that are my experience has been that people in the street fight so hard to save a few of the things they have from their past, and it's so hard when everything gets wet, when things get swept, when things stolen or even drug addiction they get lost mm -hmm. it's it's really uh, there's precious tragic yeah there's precious things that I had that I will never get back and it sounds ridiculous because it's just stuff but that stuff matters to me you know where do you think you are on your journey of recovering from those from all the things that have happened to you are, are you in a good place I think um, I'm starting to understand where I'm supposed to be. I can't wait to get off the streets. I know that there's a lot, the, the city is moving forward with trying to get all the homeless into housing, and that's something I'm really excited for. I've also heard that they're not giving housing anymore and that they're starting to do shelters again. Which, if that's the case, I really am scared, you know? I don't want to be in a shelter. That's why, why don't you want to be in a shelter? It's an environment that I feel um, I would be eaten up in, you know? Because homeless people can be very um, much so like a pack of wolves or coyotes, you know? They're just... And especially when you're a young, cute woman by yourself, you know, you get eaten up really fast. Um, I, uh, and I also want to, um, I'd like to be a foster mom at some point, you know, to um, help stop the problem before it starts. Yeah, yeah. In the future for other people. Because I feel like with my life experiences, I can, I can not only um, relate to children that have been through that or um, have been abused sexually or physically, emotionally, whatever. I can relate. I understand. I feel like I can help people, you know? You know, they talk about like lots of different... They didn't used to talk this way, but when they talk about people being smart, now they talk about people being smart in lots of different ways. And you seem actually smart in a number of ways, but you, you seem emotionally smart, like almost like your life experiences have, have kind of given you a, a broader perspective. Is that, do you think that's true? Yeah, definitely. Um, because I, as weird and sick as it is, I can empathize with anybody, really. Um, even the people that are so sick that they abuse children, I can somewhat empathize with them because if you're sexually attracted to something, you cannot help that. I understand that. But going through with that with a child is sick and wrong, you know? So, and people don't understand why I say I can empathize with that, but, you know, being through it kind of helps me with that, I think. I know it sounds weird, but... No, I I've, I I subscribe to something similar that, you know, we're here to love everybody and everybody got to where they are through their own variables and own circumstances and their own genetic pool. And um, yeah, that doesn't like let people off the kind of the responsibility hook, 
and there is this weird gap in there and that made my believing that we were responsible for our actions but at the same time we're also such a product of how we were raised and what our makeup is and it's um it's a really difficult thing to get your head around yeah and i think when people talk about um sympathy and empathy i think people confuse the two a lot you know um the difference between sympathy and empathy is sympathizing for someone is like feeling bad for them, right? But empathy is different. It's understanding where the person's coming from, not from your perspective, but from theirs, through their life experience. So truly putting yourself in their shoes and giving them essentially the benefit of the doubt that, you know, there is a reason why they are the way they are. I'm still definitely in those, uh, in the healing process, um, but I would say I'm just about ready to overcome that. Um, but I feel like you never truly overcome it, you know? It's, it's gonna be a part of me and the way that I am for the rest of my life, and I know that. It affects every decision that I make when it, when it comes to people and interactions that I have with them. I'm a lot, less likely to um to do certain things that you know most people would think why not you know because i don't want to be made a victim you know and um i see people put themselves out there in dangerous positions all the time and when i was young i didn't understand what i was doing but i put myself in the position regularly when i was young because I was repeating that cycle and it's a subconscious thing that you do to deal with trauma and I know it sounds crazy and it doesn't make sense but that's sometimes what ends up happening you know either somebody that's been abused becomes an abuser or they continue to experience that abuse over and over and over again yeah in their future interactions yep and it's it oddly becomes uh, uh, comfortable or normal yeah, definitely. And like when I was, you know, 13 and 14, I was sleeping with men in their 40s. Like, like there was nothing wrong with that. And I didn't realize that there was something wrong with them for finding a 12 or 13 year old girl sexually attractive. You know, I didn't, it's not something wrong with them. I, I didn't mean that, but, um, that there was something wrong with that relationship that I was having with these men because they were much too old for me and I was still a kid yeah. making very adult decisions. I don't regret any of it, but it definitely, I feel like if I can help people, if we could try to help people prevent that for themselves, you know, or for their children or their grandchildren or their nieces or nephews or whatever, you know, um, maybe we can start to see, you know, some positive results. Yeah. And I, you said something else that I think is really interesting is that, yes, it centers on mental health, but you can't just call everybody into into the hospital for their mental health, like like if somebody's bleeding out or has a heart attack, right? So it also feels like our society needs to learn to have bandwidth to allow people to be having mental health issues and waiting and uh, waiting for them to come to it, loving them, providing mm -hmm. for them, trying to uh, create the stepping stones for them to where they say to themselves, I need to get help with this. Is that, would that be accurate? I, I would look at it like, like a rescue, you know, like if you, if you see an animal that's been, you know, rescued, like a, maybe a pit bull that was in a fighting ring or whatever, you know, um, that, that animal is going to be very timid and very scared and probably aggressive and probably food aggressive. And, um, and they're not going to like you at first, you know? But if you take the time and get to know them and respect their boundaries and, you know, um, respect that they've been starved out and, you know, let them, you know, uh, 
let them be them and but still be there for them they will come around and they will start to love you and i feel like then the healing can start you know Danae, that is so beautiful. I'm actually just like, that's the society that we want, right? I mean, where we can do that for each other. Like, we can see that hurt and pain and say, whoa, you need, you need, you need space. You need our love. You mm -hmm. need time. And, um, and we're going to, we're going to be there for you. Yeah. Right. That's a, we would do that for an animal that, that needs rescuing. It's hard to comprehend why we're not doing that for each other. Definitely. Like, I've always looked at society and homelessness as um, us versus them. But I've kind of come to a realization uh, over the past couple of years that it's not, it shouldn't be us versus them. It should be us as we together, you know, and like, until we can figure out how to set aside our differences, stop victim shaming, quit pushing shit under the rug and actually talk about things, you know, sexual abuse awareness and uh, prevention, harm prevention, all these things are really progressive, you know, things that, that should be utilized and they should be put to use because they're there. And, and there's there's plenty of platforms to, to be able to express yourself about, you know, issues you may be having at home, social media and stuff like that. You could talk about these things, you know. Um, if you're, if you're let's say, a single parent and you just started dating uh, for the first time, you know, since, since you had kids, uh, maybe talk to your kids about the dangers of, of, you know, men or women that, that they may bring into the house. This is a possibility. And that if you, if you see any signs, let me know. Because until we do that, you're just setting yourself up for failure, you know? Um, the way that the system works right now is just, it doesn't work. It's broken. And I feel like there's a lot of things that people could do and should do. In it order begins to, with talking. Yeah. And that's, that's it. Somehow, through all of the trauma, Danae has found a beautiful way to share about her journey. It's clear she does this not only for her own healing, but also out of a desire to help others, to be a voice for those struggling through similar experiences. She wants all of us to just talk about it, to make it normal to talk about difficult things. When I was seven, that's the first time I experienced it. And I didn't know what to think, you know? I just knew that this was kind of weird. And this is a father figure to me. So how can I know that this is a wrong thing? Because he's supposed to protect me. He's supposed to love me like a daughter. And he's not. He's loving me much more than that, you know? And it's not okay. And I didn't go through sex ed until almost middle school, fifth, fifth grade. So by that point, it had already gone on for years, you know, and I was already conditioned to think that this was acceptable behavior and didn't think that I had to change. And then when I went to my first uh, sex ed class, I remember thinking to myself, so... All these things that I was experiencing my whole childhood ha was like a really inappropriate thing that should not be going on by any means. And I should have told somebody, you know, and I, cause I remember, um, asking in the middle of class, you know, uh, what's the difference between rape and molestation? And I got in trouble. You, you, wait a minute. You got in trouble for asking that question? Yeah. I got sent to the principal's office. I was so confused and everybody was laughing and, you know, cause they thought it was funny that I was in trouble. But, and at that time it just felt like this is a genuine question. I'm confused. And if I'm going through something like this, I need to know what exactly this is, but they never sent me to a counselor. They, we, there was no, nobody took a second look at it. Like, it was just like, okay, you're acting out, kid. Now, sit down and, you know, be quiet. 
I felt really, I put myself in a very vulnerable position. And that was the very first time that I had been shamed publicly for, uh, for being, for being a victim, right? Not, not directly being shamed for that, but, but, and, you know, it felt like I was. And, and it, it definitely, I, I don't think that that was right. There should have been a more understanding approach to, to it. And, and instead of like making it a bad thing that I'm bad, maybe explaining to the class like, well, that's a, you know, really good question, you know, um, it's kind of uh, a lot, but we can handle that right now. You know, I got you. Nobody, you know, stops and goes, you know, hey, maybe we should make these kids aware before it ever gets that far. It is common for folks experiencing trauma in their youth to then have issues later on in life, such as homelessness. I asked Danae if she felt there was a direct connection for her with the struggles she has experienced. Did that experience, would you say, directly led to your drug abuse and then homelessness? Yeah, definitely. Very much so directly. Like, that's why I ended up homeless. Yeah. As a result of being homeless and being scared at 13 or 12 or whatever it was, you know, I would use meth to stay awake as long as humanly possible mm. so that I couldn't be abused in my sleep anymore. And then I got delusional and crazy. And so then I started using heroin so I could sleep. And I've got a sleeping disorder that, you know, causes me to scream and cry in my sleep all the time. You know, my boyfriend wakes me up, you know, a few, a few nights a, a week for sure, you know, because I'm crying or screaming or punching him or, you know, all sorts of kinds of crazy stuff. And this is all directly related, I feel, to um, that, those experiences. Um, and people just don't, don't realize how deep that really goes. Recently, Danae lost her biological father due to an overdose of fentanyl. My dad died about four months ago. This is your... My biological, biological dad. dad. Yeah, he was always good to me, um, but he was a little physically abusive. He did hit me a lot, you know, when I was a kid, and he, he was very temperamental because he struggled with addiction himself. Um, I didn't realize that till I was much older, but um, he was outcasted by his family as well as, as me, so um, we were both treated very similarly, but he struggles with... Uh, religion and stuff he doesn't he was so lost and I just felt so bad for him because I'm comfortable with where I'm at I'm comfortable with who I am I know who I am but my dad was in his 60s and still didn't know who he was or what he was trying to do and he was so confused he was like a child there have been so many difficult emotional moments in Danae's life ones that overlap onto each other I know she juggles feelings of guilt and shame, not just for the actions in her own life, but also in most of the others around her as well. I would, I wouldn't have gone home with my dad. I would have forced him to go to treatment so that he could still be here. And I would have done what he wanted to do, which is go to meetings with him and be become a positive influence in his life because I was so focused on my own shit. I, I was being selfish and I truly do feel somewhat responsible for his death. I wanted him so badly to, to take my daughter camping and to take her fishing and do all those things that we did when I was growing up that I loved to do. She'll never get to experience that with him now and it breaks my heart. And then I found out that my daughter's dad had overdosed as well and died um, about two months ago. Wow, Janae, I'm so sorry. So, he kind of just disappeared 
you know, and I had no idea what was going on with him. I know he went to prison for a little bit. I wasn't one of his emergency contacts, so when he was in the hospital, he was uh, in a coma, I guess, uh, in the ICU after overdosing. I wanted to go see him, but I couldn't without a COVID test proving that I didn't have COVID. So um, I thought I would have a little more time than three days before he passed, but I didn't. So I didn't even get to say goodbye, which was kind of hard, but it is what it is. Danae is trying hard to get back to the starting line where she can move her life forward. She is actively working on herself and trying to find secure employment, as she says, one with a W-2. Above all, she hopes to be a part of her daughter's life, to be there for her as a positive figure, to be that person she never had. Where does your drive come from, do you think? Because, like, do you, like I know you want to get, I know you're holding your daughter uh, up as this goal to say, I'm going to, I'm going to get my life right and I'm going to, and I'm going to get back to her. Is that, I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how are you doing this? Because honestly, from the outside looking in, it's pretty amazing what you're doing, holding it all together, you know, with your health, the addiction that you've, you've dropped, um, navigating. I don't know how you navigate this stuff, honestly. And I'm, I'm wondering, how do you, how do you do that? I'm just figuring it out as I go along because these are things I've never done before. I think it's not so much like my daughter as it is like just setting, setting shit right for me because like I feel I've, I hold like a lot of guilt on my shoulders for like failing my daughter the last thing I want for her is for her to feel like she wasn't good enough because she is more than good enough. She's perfect. And I'm fucked up for not, not being able to see that she deserved better than, than what I was able to give at the time. That I feel like there could have been something, you know, really great that could have been out there for her. And there still is, you know, but I just want to be a part of that journey for her. And I'm just so honored to have the opportunity to be able to redeem myself. Like the the ultimate goal is to get to know her and to tell her who I am because mm. she doesn't know yet. So when the time comes like that I do, like that's going to be a big deal for me because I've always been kind of like a coward as far as facing difficult, you know, things. I've I've always kind of like been less um, assertive you know about things and um, this is something that's going to be a big deal for me um, taking responsibility for my failures and um, and for my accomplishments hope you're not too hard on yourself you've been through a lot right but I see so many people that that have been through just as much as I have. And, you know, right now they're, they're doing what I should have done, you know, years ago. And uh, so I know it could have been done then. And I chose not to because I was being exactly what I really don't like to admit I am, but I was being the coward that I was, you know? And I, I've grown since then and I've become stronger and I don't, feel that fear anymore so happy for you yeah and i want to say from the outside i don't see any uh of the of the coward <laughs> of you i say i really don't um i'm actually pretty amazed by you by your by your strength so i mean that thank you we began this episode with a question asking why have we not ended homelessness to answer that question, to answer it truthfully, we need to know, are we wanting to end homelessness so that we, the housed, are not impacted by it? Or do we want to end it so that the folks experiencing it will no longer suffer? Those are 
two very different reasons. The former looks for solutions to address the symptoms of homelessness with little consideration for those struggling through it. The latter dives deeper into the reasons for homelessness in an effort to address root causes, focusing on the specific needs and barriers of the homeless. Both approaches cost lots of money. There is no way around that. We can continue to spend funds sweeping the issue under the rug, or we can decide to earnestly invest in our communities by addressing the core issues of those struggling. Ending homelessness begins with each of us understanding why we want homelessness to end. Are we doing it for ourselves or for the homeless? It's an important distinction. You Know Me Now is produced, written, and edited by Tomas Bernatsky and me, Rex Holbein. We would like to thank Danae for graciously and courageously sharing her story, allowing us to get to know her just a little bit more. You Know Me Now has a Facebook and Instagram page where you can join in on the conversation. We also have a website at www.youknowmenow.com where you can see photos of Danae as well as read other stories of folks we feel you should know. Thanks for listening.